Thanks very much, Jeanette. And good morning, everyone. Uh, if this is your first time here with us this morning, especially Isabel, <laughs> uh, my name's Dan. Uh, I'm a pastor here. And uh, I want to start just with a story uh, of, uh, well, it's, it's really a story in my wife's family that's become the stuff of legends. Uh, her brother, Ryan, when he was a kid, was running the cross country. Did, did, think back to when you were at school. Did you enjoy running the cross country? If you're at school, you, oh, Ewan loves it. Good. Okay, Ewan loves running the cross country. Most kids were like me. We don't enjoy running the cross country. Through the mud, up the mountain, all that stuff. Uh, Ryan was the same. So he didn't enjoy running the cross country. But he had the misfortune of being quite fit. And so he was actually doing quite well. He'd gotten to second place. And the finish line was just up ahead. So he can see first place ahead of him. He's got plenty of energy left in the tank. And so he's thinking, I could actually take over this guy. And the other racers are hot in his heels. But he doesn't go to take over first place. He actually begins slowing down. And he lets third place overtake him. So he's now sitting in third. And then he lets fourth place overtake him. He goes down to fourth, fifth, sixth. And then he kicks his energy into gear and coasts over the finish line in seventh place. Now that night, he goes home and he tells his parents, so my parents-in-law, he tells them, Mum and Dad, you'll be so proud of me. I was coming second in the cross country, but then I came seventh. And his dad smiles, claps him on the shoulders, goes, boy, that's my son, well done. Now why? <laughs> well, because remember, Ryan doesn't enjoy the cross country like most kids. And he knows that the top six will have to go through to zone. And that means another race up a mountain, through the mud, and against kids who actually care this time. And his dad is in the same boat for a different reason. He's thinking, thank goodness, we don't have to drive him to yet another thing. <laughs> it just illustrates the principle, doesn't it? It's a good story. Uh, it illustrates the principle that the first will be last, the last will be first, <laughs> that actually coming in first place is not always the desirable outcome of a race. And at the end of Matthew 19, Jesus makes that statement, but many of you will be first, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And of course, he's not talking about a cross-country race. We know that. He's talking about, a, in one sense, a much bigger race, the race of life. He's actually talking about the end of all things. And this is a gear shift, I know, after hearing quite a sort of fun story, but, but a day is coming when the, the race of life, as it were, will be done for each and every one of us. I don't know if you think about that all that much. Probably you think about it more the older that you get, right? I'm 35. I don't think about it all that much. But, but that day is coming for each and every one of us. And Jesus says that we will stand before his judgment throne on that day. Whether it is that we die and face that day or he returns and we face that day. We will each and every one of us stand before him. And he says that on that day, there's going to be like this great reversal Right, a, a thing where first become last and last become first. So those in life who thought that they were at the front of the pack in the gold medal position are actually going to find that they lost the race, that they were running the wrong direction the whole time. And those who were at the back of the pack who looked like the losers are actually going to be given the victor's honour. Now, what on earth could that mean? What does that actually look like on that day? What will that mean for you? 
What does it mean for those who don't believe in Christ and follow Christ now? What does it mean for those that do? What does it mean for those who do sort of among each other? How will this apply to everyone on earth, including yourself? Well, today we're going to hear Jesus answer that question in this text from Matthew 19 and then over the chapter in Matthew 20. And we'll do this in two parts. First, a conversation with his disciples shows what this great reversal means for unbelievers in contrast to believers. So unbelievers and believers. There's a conversation. Then secondly, a story, a parable about casual day shift workers will show what this means for believers amongst each other. So first, unbelievers versus believers, and then believers amongst each other. And look, guys, it's, it's so rare that we actually get a chance to pause and get our heads above everyday life. You know, it's, I know all of you are busy with different things, right? But to come here and sit under God's word and to reflect on where life is going, to reflect on what this day of great reversal will mean for us. It's so rare that we get to do that. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord's help to, to help us focus. Lord, we do pray now you would work in hearts and minds, each of ours, to prepare to listen to Jesus, to hear him speak through his word. We pray, Lord, that if there are other things on our mind at the moment, you'd help us put them aside. If there's distractions that might come, if there's a, a phone that might go off, we, we pray just that you would help us leave that for the moment and, Lord, to, to focus on what you are saying to each of us personally here in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open up to Matthew 19 with me. Um, if you're using a church Bible, I think that's on page 824. If you don't have a Bible, there's a few up the back there. Feel free to jump up and grab one or ask someone to grab one. Feel free to just grab your phone and Google Matthew 19 ESV. It's okay to have your phone out. Okay, I want to see you either with a Bible or a phone in front of you because I want you to see what God says here through his word. So Matthew 19, we're, we're dropping in sort of halfway through a conversation, right? Because if you were here last week, we met a rich man who came to Jesus. Do you remember what he asked? What good deed must I do to have what? Yeah. So he's asking Jesus, what, what should I do to have eternal life? And he walks away sorrowful from that conversation because he realizes, like Jesus has exposed in him, that his wealth actually stands in the way of him having eternal life. He will always trust in, depend on, worship his wealth more than he ever will trust in, depend on, and worship the Lord Jesus. And so he walks away sorrowful. But what we're going to see here is that the situation is totally different for his disciples. Take a look at verse 27. Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, they've done what the rich man couldn't, haven't they? They've thrown down their fishing nets. They've thrown down their tools. They've kissed their families goodbye. They've left their homes. And they've literally been following Jesus on foot now for two and a half, three years. So they have indeed actually left everything behind. But the question is, what will this mean for their prospects? Because, I mean, the rich man who walked away from Jesus sorrowful, I mean, he's still rich, isn't he? He got to keep all his wealth. He's still got the good life, so to speak. He's going back to his villa to sip wine with his trophy wife, right? On the Sea of Galilee. What about these guys? 
so asked Peter, what reward is there for us? And that's the question that some of us this morning may well have, because true, you might not have left your job, sold your car, left your family behind, sold your house for the sake of Jesus, right? But if you're a disciple of Jesus, then discipleship is costly. Every disciple of Jesus is, is going to cop it in some way, simply for the fact that they follow Jesus. They follow after a Lord who gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. And so they too will give and give and give. They will cop it. What is it costing you to follow Jesus? I mean, because there's so many things in life that, that we may have to give up, if not only in our hearts, then certainly in our actions. Uh, consider, for example, uh, that, that I, and I know some of you have faced the rejection of family or friends because of your faith. Right, kids, uh, even at school. So if you, if you make it known that you're a Christian, sometimes people will tease you for that. Not everyone, and they shouldn't, but sometimes they will. I got teased a little bit for making it known that I was a Christian. Kids will say things like, you believe in a God that you can't even see? That's so silly. Why would you think that? Now, actually, I think it's very logical and very wise to believe in God. <laughs> But some people won't understand that. And so there are costs that even kids, if they become a Christian, might face for Jesus. As you become a teenager, your, your friends might think it's uncool, right? They'll sort of have a go at you behind your back. And that doesn't stop in adulthood, right? It, it just becomes less about coolness and more about something else. Who knows what? Uh, you go to the family event and there's the, the little conversation that happens in the corner. Oh, yeah, I can't believe they still go to church. They're wasting their Sundays. Oh, my goodness, right? It happens as well uh, if you perhaps have to say no to a promotion or say no to a job because the ethics of that position would conflict with your morals as a Christian. It would conflict with God's will. And so you say no and you, you cop it in the sense of, okay, I could have gotten a better wage. I could have gotten a better opportunity. So I know some of you have lost out on promotions or even jobs because you chose honesty and integrity over financial gain. And I know also that many of you give a bunch of stuff away, money, possessions, time, in service of the Lord Jesus. Right? If you're a member here, you're probably giving to this church every week, right? And I don't know who gives. I don't ask who gives. But, but you're probably giving a lot away. And so as hard as it can be, this is actually part and parcel of discipleship. We will pay costs here in this life. But there's a principle that Jesus wants his disciples to understand, both those there at the time and us today. And it's a principle that I think begins here in, in uh, I'll, I'll link you over to 2 Corinthians verse 5, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. I just want you to see that this is part and parcel of discipleship. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one has died for all. He's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. So all his people have died with him is what that's saying. And he died for all that those who live, who've been raised with Christ into forgiveness and new life by faith, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why did Jesus die for us? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Why did Jesus die for us? And certainly you should be answering for the forgiveness of our sins. Certainly. But not only for the forgiveness of our sins, 
because a forgiven sinner will then be changed. They will be transformed. They will begin to follow Jesus as their Lord. They will say, my life is no longer my own. It belongs to the one with whose blood it was purchased. Right? And so the true disciple of Jesus will say, okay, I'm going to learn to face rejection. I'm going to learn to lose out on opportunities. I'm going to learn to to give stuff away for the sake of Christ. I've mentioned before, a good friend of mine calls this the ministry of losing. They're going to learn to lose. They're going to learn to be at the back of the racing pack. And from the world's perspective, isn't that just utterly foolish? Like, what a pity. What an absolute pity that, that that person just got sort of brainwashed by religion. I actually think this is how some of my friends view me. They, they sort of go, oh man, like he's a nice guy, Dan, and he's, he's pretty smart and whatever, but oh, what a pity. He could have been something. Instead, he's a pastor, you know, which is nice. It's nice for him, but man, I just, I just think that they view me or maybe even Christians just for this sense of pity because to most people, do you think we, we, we just look like we're limping over the finish line? Like we're not, we're not looking particularly strong or powerful or impressive by the world's standards. But then listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 28. This is where he starts to reverse things. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, and this is what he says to his disciples there, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he says a day is coming when everything's going to be made new. This is the great reversal. And then he says to his disciples, you won't fall under the world's judgmental glare anymore. Actually, you'll be the ones judging the world. And specifically for, for these 12 here, and we assume not Judas, but probably Paul, who becomes an apostle later, uh, for, for the 12 disciples, they're going to sit on these 12 thrones, raised to a place of honor, and they're going to preside in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, why? Because they are essentially a jury of their peers who represents everything that Israel should have been, but also everything that Israel uh, condemned as foolish, right? Of all people, the Israelites should have been the one that trusted in Jesus. They had hundreds of years of the scriptures before them, right? That, that, that they, were, they, they had a, a head start in the race, if you want to put it that way. But they didn't trust in Jesus, many of them. Many of them actually turned from Jesus and some of them crucified Jesus, together with the Romans, together with the Gentiles. And so the disciples are going to be there presiding in judgment over Israel as a jury of their peers that represent everything they should have been, but everything that they condemned as foolish. It's a complete reversal. See, the first will be last, the last will be first. But that's not all. Jesus says there's more in store in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So he's saying to his disciples, Peter, James, John, etc. I see what you've left and there is a return on investment that's coming, right? You've given away much in this life but I will give you much more in the life to come. And that's the imagery there of a hundredfold. I mean, if, if you invested, I mean, if you lost your car in this life, your car's worth, what, five, ten grand or something, and, and your return on investment of selling that car was actually 500 grand or a million bucks, you'd go, 
Forget about the lousy car, right? <laughs> Look at what I've gained. That's the image here that, that Jesus has. There's an image of um, uh, what's coming is far, far, far greater than whatever we might lose in the present. And notice as well that this isn't just addressed to the disciples standing there with him. Look at the start of verse 29. And everyone, think about what you've paid the cost to follow Jesus. Think about what you might have lost. Think about the reward that Jesus promises those who have lost things as they followed him. There's one man I want to introduce you to who knew this cost very well. Uh, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you heard of him before? He wrote an amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, I really recommend that you read it. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German man. He lived in the, the mid-20th century, so 1920s, 30s, 40s, around there. Uh, get this, he was a, a man of almost unlimited potential. If you know anything about him, you'll know what I'm talking about. He had his first doctorate, right, his PhD, his first doctorate at the age of 21. Three years later, at the age of 24, he earned his second doctorate. He was one of Germany's like brightest, fine minds. And yet, he loved the Lord Jesus and just wanted to give himself to serve him. And so, he used that very fine mind to become a pastor. And he, he pastored a church, he lectured at a Bible college, and then when he knocked off from work, he'd go and kick a soccer ball around with some unruly kids that no other pastors wanted to work with because they were too misbehaving. And he would kick the soccer ball around with them, get all their energy out, and then sit down and teach them about Jesus and try to teach them theology. That's the sort of guy that he was. He used his mind for Jesus. He gave his time for Jesus. But the costs started mounting up, and they particularly mounted up during the 1930s. And you may or may not be aware of this, but in the 1930s in Germany, things went badly. Uh, there was a guy, Adolf Hitler, who started rising to power and, and a party called the Nazi Socialist Party that, that began rising to power as well. And you may not know this bit, but at this time, uh, a population of about 60 million people in Germany, about 40 million of them were identifying as Protestant Christians. And uh, the, the national church in Germany uh, was sort of swayed by the Nazi Socialist Party using various threats, but also using various promises to essentially align itself with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. So you've now got 40 million odd Protestant Christians who align themselves with this church that is itself aligned with Hitler. Horrible situation. And there, there are a couple of sayings. This just rips my heart out. Um, there was one pastor at the time named Julius Luthuser who once preached that Christ has come to us in Adolf Hitler. The motto of the National Reich Church was, this is confronting, a swastika on our breast and the cross in our heart. It's just insane to think living at a time like that. I wonder, what would you do? Well, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did was stand against it. So he became known as, as a public opponent to the National Reich Church and to Hitler. Um, he did various pretty radical things to try and preach the truth uh, and try and stop what was happening. Uh, he ended up lecturing in like this underground illegal Bible college for a period of time. And eventually the, the Nazis figured out what he was doing. And so they 
banned his books and they fired him from his job. And then eventually, when he still didn't stop, they arrested him. He ended up being confined in a cell about six feet by nine feet. So I'm six foot tall. Imagine like my height. That's the width of the room and just enough to lie down in. He speaks in his memoirs about missing the sound of birds singing and missing seeing things in colour. But he keeps paying cost after cost after cost. And that's because in his great work, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's 2 Corinthians 5, as we were just reading. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to Christ. And so he pays the cost. Why would he be willing to pay so much? Why would he be willing to lose so much? And when he could simply take it all away with a word of recantation, right? He could say, yeah, I was wrong. Nazis, you're right. Well, here's why. He says, our true life is hidden, but it's grounded firmly in eternity, not in the present with its costs, but in eternity with its rewards. And so he says this, so heaven is torn open above us humans, right? He's like, I can see up to where my true life really is. It's torn open. And the joyful message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe. And in believing, I receive Christ. And hear this. Imagine him saying this in prison. I have everything. I live before God. Bonhoeffer was killed by hanging in a concentration camp not too long after this, stripped naked, emaciated and starved. But his final words were this. This is for me the end, but the beginning of life. Now, he paid the price over and over and over and over because he knew where his true life was. It was hidden in Christ. It was stored up in heaven for him. And the reward Jesus had for him, being in his presence, knowing the goodness of God forever, overwhelmed the weight of his losses by far. Like, not even a comparison. And so whoever leaves houses, families, lands, reputation, security, career, comfort, even their very life for Jesus' sake, will receive far greater things and inherit eternal life, which is better by far. That's why a man like Bonhoeffer would give his life. As 2 Corinthians 4 puts it, for this light momentary affliction, whatever cost we pay right now, it's just a feather. It's a light momentary affliction. And it's preparing for us an eternal weight, a heaviness, a significance of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Heaven torn open above us. We see where our life truly is. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And so if you're copying it because you're a disciple, whether in small ways or big ways, you know, this isn't just a nice encouragement. This isn't just a bit of sentimental help. This is necessary encouragement. I can tell you there are times in my life, you, you want to ask me about this, I'll share with you more frankly, but there are times in my life where, honestly, this is, only, this is all I could hold on to. Okay, This is necessary encouragement. Whatever you lose for Jesus' sake is nothing compared to what you will gain. And so be encouraged. And I mean that in the real sense of the word. Be of courage, right? 
Take courage. Get steel in your spine because many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Those who look like they're living the good life away from God, away from Jesus, running at the front of the pack, they will be met with a rude awakening when Jesus returns. And if that's you, beware. Right? That day's coming. Turn to Jesus now before it's too late. But if you're at the back of the pack, feeling like a loser, really copping it, just know the day's coming where Jesus is going to raise you to a place of honor. We will gain everything. That's the first great reversal. But there's a second great reversal that Jesus points to as well. And I want you to notice just the, the nod towards it here in verse 30. Notice how he ends. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And that first word I find quite puzzling. But. I would have expected him to say, therefore. Or so. Right? So as we see, it's going to all flip. He says, but. Why is he saying but? I think because he's, he's actually developing another point now. There's a bit of, you call it a hinge verse. It's between the conversation and the story, and it's now sort of bridging the gap between the two of them. And I think that's because there is something that his disciples really need to hear at this point, because some believers pay a huge cost to follow Jesus. Any believer will pay some cost, but some pay a huge cost, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so what about others that don't? What about others that, that, unlike the disciples, didn't leave everything, but maybe converted on their deathbed? Or maybe lived a relatively easy life of faithfulness, sort of, to Jesus, but they just kind of squeaked in at the end. Well, what, about, what about them? Well, the question will be answered here in this story. And what we're going to see is that this is a great reversal that has to do not with unbelievers and believers, but... You see the big part of the cake there versus the small. It's to do with among believers. Do, are they going to be sort of like different, different gifts for those that pay more in their walk with Jesus versus those that pay less? Well, the story begins like this, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So in the ancient world, uh, business owners would often hire what's called a group of day laborers. So sort of like a casual shift worker today. You, you don't have a contract. You just called in in the morning. Um, they just, you just find out on the day of. It reminds me back when uh, I used to be a high school teacher and for a while I was doing casual teaching. And often you would just get a call at 7 a.m. in the morning saying, can you come in today? And I'd be like, oh, I just woke up. I don't want to do anything. But yep, absolutely, because I want the money, right? I was a poor, broke, just out of uni student. <laughs> I wanted the money. Now, these guys, um, that's sort of the situation for them, except they're not just like a uni student with no one depending on them. These are men who have wives, who have kids, who have homes, and so they are depending on this call, so to speak, each and every day. So they're not being woken up by the phone, like buzzing on the bedside table and going, oh, yeah, who is it? Like I would. They're watching that phone like a hawk from sunrise, so to speak. So what they do is they come down, they, they just gather in the marketplace from sunrise. They'd wait there. And then the master who, who wanted to hire people, he would go down, he'd walk through the marketplace, he'd size them up, and he'd see who looks like the best workers, he'd hire them, and, and then take them on to work. 
And so that's essentially what's happening here. Verse 2, the master goes to hire some workers and he finds, yes, indeed, there are some people waiting there right at sunrise and their tools are on their belt. They're ready to go. Okay. So he offers them a denarius for the day. A denarius was an ancient form of currency, basically a day's work worth of wage. So enough to feed your family, enough to put a little away for savings. And yeah, imagine these guys' thankfulness, right? Their families are depending on them. If we don't get work today, we don't get food. But here comes this, this master who comes down and, ah, oh, wow, all right, I'm going to go and work hard now. I've been hired. But then a few hours later, the master goes out again, goes down to the marketplace. And he sees some other guys down there. Verse 3, they are standing around idle. What picture do you get of these guys? Maybe lazy. Maybe they're just playing cards. There's another way of taking this word as well. It could just mean that they're standing around waiting. Because after all, you know, the day has started. The people have been hired. It's 9 a.m., right? The workday's already begun. What else are they going to do? They don't have any other work. They'll wait, see what happens. But the master comes down, sizes them up, and hires them. Now, they don't ask what the pay is, if you notice. In fact, verse 4, he just says to them, you go into the vineyard too and whatever's right, I'll give to you. And they're like, fantastic. Whatever you have to give. We thought we were done today. All right, fantastic. Whatever you pay us, totally fine. So then the master does the same thing at midday. He goes out, hires more people, whatever is right. Yep, okay, great. 3 p.m. does the same thing again. And then in the 11th hour, it's one hour before the close of work, he goes out once more. And see, he finds some guys still waiting at the marketplace. And he asks them, why are you still here? Good question. The day is done. It's more than done. Why haven't you gone back to your families? Why are you still here? And they answer, because no one's hired us. And I think that's because, you know, the ones left at the end of the day, that's a good question. Why, why haven't they gone back to their families? Probably because they're ashamed. Yet another day. I didn't get work, right? And these guys left over, they're probably the injured, the unproductive, maybe the chronically lazy. They're the least desirable people that you would want working on your vineyard. So you can imagine that they're just sitting around dispirited. But today is different. The master sees them and he comes and he hires them. And imagine them turning up for this last hour of the workday, like 4 p.m. Everyone else is kind of shutting down their computers and like putting their, their tools away, ready to, to fill out their timesheet. And here these guys come with their tools on their belt and they're like, okay, so what can I do? <laughs> right, they're, they're not needed. It's not like the master needs them to come and work, but he hires them anyway. So off they come and, and do the, the job that they do for an hour And then that's it. The final whistle blows. It's payday. And here's where the interesting thing happens. The story has its turning point. You probably caught it as Jeanette was reading. In comes the guys who only worked for one hour. They're paid first. And what would they expect? I mean, if you work for one hour, then you get enough wage for one hour, right? That's just how labor works. But instead, what does the master give them? Verse 9, a whole denarius. A whole day's work for one, a whole day's wage for one hour work. Now imagine their joy at that. Imagine their relief. 
We've got food on the table. We've got enough to, to save a little. Did the boss go crazy? <laughs> like, did he, did he make a mistake? Who cares? Right, and they take it and they go. And then the same happens for the guys that come at three and at lunch and at nine. Now, imagine if you were one of the guys that were there with your tools at sunrise. And you're seeing all these guys getting like a reward that goes far beyond the work that they actually did. Call the union, says Judy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, what are you thinking? I mean, you must be thinking what's in store for us. I mean, we put in the longest shift. Surely there's something really special for us. And I mean, verse 10, that's exactly what it says. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Dot, 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 dot. But each of them also received a denarius. And they're spitting chips. Verse 11, they, upon receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last ones worked only one hour and you made them equal with us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You can hear their disgust, can't you? That's right there in their tone. You made them equal with us. These guys who didn't get up at sunrise, who barely lifted a finger. Now, isn't that interesting? Are you beginning to understand why Jesus may have needed to tell this parable to his disciples? Because they left everything. They were some of the first to put their hands up and follow him. In fact, in the course of time, most of them would give their lives in service of Jesus. Some of them by crucifixion, in fact. But this sense of entitlement to greater reward is a real danger for them. We've done more, so surely we deserve more, right? In fact, this attitude is a danger for any disciple who's given up a fair amount for Jesus, whether it's you know, persecution or family abandonment or houses burnt or even really at the less extreme end, and this is probably more our case, just a, a lifetime of growing in holiness. I mean, I know some of you have been serving Jesus for a really long time. And the Christian life can be hard even just in the basics, right? We immerse ourselves in the scriptures each day. That takes effort. We could be watching TV. We pray diligently for ourselves and others in our lives. We, we serve our brothers and sisters. We try to share the good news with those who generally don't want to hear it. And all while having God sand off the rough edges of our sinful life as we go about it. That's a hard life, isn't it? We know it's a better life. We know it's the life that, that is greater joy because we're becoming more like Jesus. We're knowing and serving our Lord. But it's a hard life. And so contrast that with someone who squeaks into the kingdom at literally the 11th hour. I was talking just a week ago with a, a hospital chaplain who sees this happen, right? Right there at the end, it's, it's literally a minute. They're about to die and they turn to Jesus, right? They didn't serve Jesus for their life. They didn't have to pay any costs. Probably they made life hard for some of the Christians around them. So, so how is this fair? right? If, if it's genuine faith and repentance that they have, if they really do turn to Jesus, forsaking all else, trusting in him and his sacrifice alone for the forgiveness of their sins, and, and they do repent of the fact that they've lived this life apart from God, how is that fair that they then gain eternal life? Because think about the reward for them. Eternal life. 
not deserved, but just given freely by God in his generosity. The embrace of a father who created them and loves them and saves them. The riches of God's infinite kindness showered upon them for all eternity. Utterly undeserved. But then what's the reward for the person who lived a costly life of service? Eternal life. The embrace of a father who loves them and saves them. The infinite riches of his kindness showered upon them for all eternity. Is it, is it eternal er life? Like more than eternal life that they receive? Is it a closer embrace from the father? Is it more than infinite, like infinity plus one riches of his kindness? Like, no. That's what Jesus is saying here. The gift of saving grace is the same for all believers. And now we, we could say something here about, I guess, the nature of rewards in the life to come and whether there is some differentiation, and I believe there is, uh, but not when it comes to saving grace. And if you want to puzzle out that theological question this week, get along to your growth group because you're going to wrestle with a few verses and a few quotes on that. Okay? But this passage doesn't actually touch on it, so we, we won't go there too much. But the point is this, at the end of the day, every believer gets the same access to God, right? Whether they squeaked in at the last second or they lived a whole life of, of serving him wholeheartedly. The same access to God, the same riches of his kindness, both the long serving and the late coming. For, bon, for, sorry, for Bonhoeffer and the disciples who, who have given quite a lot to get the same as just the deathbed convert, well, you can understand why some would think that's unfair, but look at the, the master's answer in verse 13. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now, that, that phrase there, I'm doing you no wrong, is literally, I'm doing you no injustice. I'm doing you no unfairness. Because after all, you know, if we want to appeal to God's justice, if we want to appeal to God's fairness, you know, where will that leave us? Think about it. If we stand on our own two feet without Christ's forgiveness and we say, God, be fair to me, be just to me, what are we going to get? It won't be rewards, I'll tell you that. <laughs> all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And we depend only on the mercy of Christ. And so the point is, greater service in this life doesn't entitle us to anything greater in the life to come. We need to decouple the idea that whatever we do in service of Jesus in this life earns or entitles us to something greater. And there's a writer who puts this very, very well, I think. God's grace, in short, is not the sort of thing you can bargain with or try to store up. It's not like a wage. It isn't the sort of thing that one person can have a lot of and someone else only a little. The point of the story is that what people get from having served God in his kingdom is not actually a wage at all. It's not strictly a reward for work done. He's not rewarding us for effort, but doing what comes naturally to his overflowingly generous nature. Whether someone becomes a Christian in a persecuted country with a lifetime of hardship ahead of them or they become a Christian on their deathbed having lived far away from God, whatever they do or don't do has no bearing on the gift of saving grace. It's not a wage. It's not entitlement. It's saving grace just the same. Now beware because that shouldn't lead anyone into a false sense of security because God will not be mocked. We never know when our day will come and God will not be mocked. But do you get it? 
all who turn to Jesus are recipients equally of his over-the-top, generous grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. And that means there's no room for entitlement. There's no room for jealousy. There's no room for envy. There's only room for gratitude. Only room for humility. Because as the master of the parable ends in verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He can do with us whatever he wants. But praise God, he's generous. (laughs) Would we begrudge his generosity by thinking we're entitled to the gifts that he gives us? Far be it. He is a generous God. And I mean, if you think about it, any business owner who put this parable into practice as a way of, you know, remunerating their employees would soon be out of business, wouldn't they? But that's exactly the kind of uncalculating generosity that characterizes our God. He's the kind of God who takes the last, the latecomer, the unlikely, the forgotten, the fallen, the back of the pack, and he raises them up to the highest place. Because even among believers, the first will be last, and the last will be first. What does that prompt in you? What response do you have to that? See, in Jesus' kingdom, there's no room for grumbling about unfairness or envying what someone else gets or doing things because we think God must reward us. There's only room for the gratitude to the God who is overwhelmingly generous. And and I just want to finish by saying this is the God that each of us need to see afresh. I don't just want to get up here and and preach life principles, right? Because that's not what the Bible gives us. It gives us a vision of God. Here's the vision of God that we see today. He is generous beyond all understanding. Generous in the rewards he promises to those who give much. But also generous to those who haven't lifted a finger but have simply trusted in Christ. Generous just the same. Generous because he's a generous God. And so, whether you think you're doing fine at the front of the pack without him, or you're struggling along in the Christian race, or you're firmly at the back of the pack, really copying it, you need to see this generous God for who he is. He's more generous than we can ever imagine. He gave his son to save us. He has eternal life in store for us. The gift will far outweigh the cost. He's unbelievably generous. Thank goodness that he is. You pray with me. Lord, we want to be in awe of of who you are in your character as the generous God who forgives, the generous God who gives, the generous God who has in store for us an eternal life that that is just not what we deserve, but is far greater than we can imagine. And so, Lord, I pray as we leave this place, we, we wouldn't just be caught up with this life and, and with how we're going versus the world's standards and, and versus the world's values. But instead, Lord, we'd, we'd look to you and see what you have in store. And we'd be motivated to, to serve you with generosity and gladness and gratitude and to pay whatever costs we need. Lord, capture us with the vision of the new creation and of heaven and of Christ's return, we pray. In his name, amen. We're going to share in communion now. And this is a moment not only to look back at what Christ has done, but to look forward to his coming. Because as we share in this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
And so uh, 